You're listening to The Sigrun Show, episode number 260. In this episode, I'm talking to Steve Dotto about the surprising advantage of niching down on YouTube. Welcome to The Sigrun Show. I'm your host, Sigrun, creator of Samba, the MBA program for online entrepreneurs. With each episode, I'll share with you inspiring case studies and interviews to help you achieve your dreams and turn your passion into profits. Thank you for spending time with me today. Building an online business takes time. I share with you proven strategies to help you get there faster. You'll also learn how to master your mindset, up-level your marketing, and succeed with masterminds. Steve Dotto is Canada's most respected geek. For over 15 years, Steve entertained and educated on national TV millions of Canadians on all aspects of technology. Today, Steve has two popular YouTube channels. His first one is a traditional how-to and productivity channel, which follows his TV tradition. And the second one is a more personal channel where he publishes his vlog. On this episode, we talk about how to grow a YouTube channel and the surprising advantage of niching down. Go to signal.com forward slash 260 and there you find links to Steve and the show notes of this episode. I am super excited to be here with Steve Dotto on my podcast, finally on the Sigrun Show. I think we've been chasing each other for a while. <laughs> we have, but you're you're a hard woman to, to book a time with because you're so busy. Yes, that's true. I'm constantly on the road. But finally, we're here and we already kind of started to talk before I hit the record button. And we got into such an exciting topic. And we're going to talk about how to niche down on YouTube. But before, hey, Steve Dotto... Please bring us back to why are you on YouTube? Oh, uh, my origin story. For 15 years, I hosted a television show in Canada called Dotto Tech. It was a how-to computer show. And I did all the traditional media. I was had a radio show. I did a newspaper column. And I was a, had a, a TV show that was syndicated. And that was in the early days, teaching people how to use computer. I mean, I, I showed people how to install their modem and upgrade their modem from 2400 baud to 9600 baud. I mean, back in the days before we had the internet, we were showing people how to use technology. In 2011, I'd kind of outgrown the networks and I decided finally to part company. And a show like ours shouldn't be on the air anymore because people were looking for the type of content that we delivered online because we were always how-to, teaching people how to do things. A few years, I uh, kind of wandered in the wilderness and then I met a mutual friend of ours, Mari Smith. I was uh, emceeing a awards banquet and Mary was a keynote speaker at the at the event and she picked up on what I'd been doing on TV and what I was doing and she looked way down at me because she's so tall she goes you're doing everything wrong (laughs) (laughs) and she told me I got to stop I got to start doing this stuff online and she took me inside and she was just in the middle of a product launch and I had no idea what social marketing was or online marketing I didn't know what a email list should be. I didn't know what an opt-in was or a lead magnet. I had no idea what a call to action was or a information products. And she was selling a course on online selling Facebook ads. And I don't know why she took pity on me, but she literally, you know, showed me Infusionsoft, showed me the, the model and walked me right through the entire business model of what a content marketer could do. And I was blown away. Obviously it's a fascinating world. And if you've just come to it late in life, I mean, I concentrate on everything else. 
it was like, wow, it was like fireworks going off. And I said, I could do this, but I'm not going to do it on Facebook like Mari. That's not my place. And I thought, I'm going to try this on YouTube because I had no video. So I started to build my channel on YouTube. And I made a lot of mistakes, but that was the genesis. That's why it started. And that's why I started delivering my product on YouTube because I'm a video guy. I'm a good storyteller and I'm good at explaining technology. So that was how it all started. So that's why I'm on YouTube is I, as I started. And I didn't know that people my age weren't supposed to be on YouTube at the time. <laughs> uh, I've discovered that since, uh, but it's too late. I'm there. Yeah. When was that when you started your channel? Well, my channel officially started in 2007, but that was back when I did the TV show and we just had a production assistant upload videos. So I never paid attention to YouTube. I really began my journey of kind of building the product into what it is today about four or five years ago. And then it's just in the last three years that we've really got our feet under us. You know, before that, it was the channel was there. And it, yes, it had followers, but it was stagnant. It didn't have a strategy behind it. I didn't understand what the world of YouTube was all about. I don't know if I understand it yet, but I've that at least I know what questions to ask now. Yeah. Well, you did a webinar with me a couple of years back. I don't know. Is it two or three years ago? And then you were celebrating a milestone of your channel. I think maybe it was 100,000 subscribers. 100,000 subscribers? Yes. That would be for that there. Yeah. Oh, yeah there's cool. a sign in the back on the video. Yeah. Yeah. Did YouTube celebrate that with you? It's nice. YouTube lets creators, uh, it's kind of like getting a gold record from the record company. When you hit 100,000 subscribers, you get a silver play button. Then if you hit a million, you get a gold play button. And 10 million gets you a diamond play button. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, I'm, I'm not going to get there. <laughs> <laughs> we're working on a million. We're, we're at 240,000 or so right now. Pretty good. Congratulations. YouTube's a phenomenal place to be. For me, coming from a traditional media background, you know, my customers used to be advertising agencies, PR firms, the TV networks themselves. All of a sudden with YouTube, your customers are the people who watch your content. And that is an epiphany. That, it changes everything. It, it re-energized me. Because, you know, if you've been doing the same thing for 15 years, you get a little bit beaten down by it. But the opportunity to talk to your community, and it's led me to success. I mean, the fact that the people who watch the show are the people that I talk to online on, in YouTube comments. And they tell me what they want to see more of and what they want to see less of. And if you pay attention to them, if you honor your community, they'll lead you to where you need to go. It's an easy model. I mean, it's not, it, you still have to work, but the information's there. Yeah, that's a fascinating. So if somebody's starting a YouTube channel, I have totally neglected mine, for instance. How long does it take to get to 100,000 if some people are starting from scratch? It depends. It depends on how viral you are and in, 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 in what your marketplace is. But I don't get caught up on numbers, though, because as somebody who is uh, who works with like a, a coach or somebody that has individuals that they work with, you know, if you have a couple of thousand people following you on YouTube, but it's the right couple of thousand people, it doesn't matter. We all have different communities that are going to support us. The thing is, if it becomes the discovery engine that fuels your enterprise. I mean, for us in the social marketing space, it's all about discovery and delivery. It's how are people going to find us? How are the right people going to find us? And then how do we deliver our value to them? You know, if we boil it down to its simplest equation, that's really what it is. And YouTube is a great partner in that space. They don't change the rules constantly like Facebook does or charge you to gain access to your community. They're a true partner. I don't feel the same way about Facebook. And they're the second biggest search engine in the world. So if you're creating content that's of value and YouTube recognizes that it's of value, you create authority 
then when people are looking for information in your space, YouTube's going to recommend you. And what more can you ask? At that point there, it's, you know, they get to watch you and they get to see you and they get to measure your energy and measure your ethos and decide whether or not they want you. It's a fast track to relationships. So no, I, I you know, as far as how fast your community will grow, it's going to grow proportionally to the energy you put into it and the quality of your content. But it will grow if you follow some really basic guidelines. I mean, you, you want to pay attention to what YouTube looks for. YouTube looks for good quality titles, great quality thumbnails, of course, compelling content. They're looking for longer form content. And one of the most important things, and we say it over and over again, and it's the hardest thing for people to do, is they look for consistency. They look for you to publish frequently. So you've let your channel go probably because you have little fits and starts where you publish three or four videos in a short period of time and then you don't do anything for a period of time. So your community never gets to the point where they know what to expect from you. You might also have trouble with the fact that you're looking for your voice. So a lot of people are trying to, they're playing with different video formats and lengths and narratives. Uh, so they don't, they don't have clarity on what their content is. That's a big issue. I mean, that's something you have to overcome. But if you have clarity of content, if you know the content that your community is going to be interested in and you publish it frequently and you do high quality, you're going to grow. You're going to succeed on YouTube. It's not an if, it's a when. Mm. So it's a little bit like a podcast. It's the first content, I would say, that I have committed so hugely to. I do three episodes a week. I did 100 episodes in 100 days with almost everything else I've just and what did you find? Did you find that it got a momentum of its own as a result of that commitment? Yeah. Yeah. And YouTube would be the same. I would say it's very, very similar. But you had to figure out your voice. You had to figure out what your audience was interested in, the length. You had to come up with a production technique and a format so that you weren't recreating it every time, so that it was production work and not art, right? With how you're going to edit it and all of those sorts of things. It's the exact same thing with YouTube. Yeah. But would you say that people have to create the content specifically for YouTube? Like we're talking, everybody says about repurposing, let's say you do a Facebook Live or now I'm recording a video when I'm recording this episode on a podcast. With a few exceptions, I would say, yes, you should be doing it just for YouTube. And, he, and here's the thing. And YouTube isn't going to penalize you for publishing content in other spaces. It's just, uh, they, they aren't quite jealous. They aren't the jealous lover the way Facebook is. But you have to recognize, you know, if we talk about where, live, where we put our energy, if you create something on Facebook Live, which has a, a certain energy and a certain, it's performed in a certain way, that content is part of the value is the fact it's happening live. We love as humans to be in the moment. So if you then take this as a pre-recorded piece, dump it on YouTube, you're just kind of almost insulting your YouTube audience, right? By saying, you know, here's this thing, you might be interested in it too. We were really interested in doing this for Facebook, but here, you can have it too. Here's the crumbs for you to learn something from as well, right? As opposed to composing something that's for them, that's designed for them. One thing you have to remember is when we look at Facebook and YouTube video, Facebook is interruptive video. Every type of video you watch on Facebook, you are stumbling across by accident when you're probably avoiding doing your work because you're browsing Facebook. When you watch a video on YouTube, it's an intentional view. You've come and you've searched for what it is you are looking for. So there's a, immediately a more serious relationship between you and your viewer in YouTube because they've asked for it and they've clicked on it. 
it hasn't stumbled across in their feed and they, you know, and they, it's not an accidental or an interruptive view, which actually might even be something they don't appreciate. And certainly, how are they going to find it again when they need it? If we teach them how to, uh, you know, we give them five great tips for building a list builder and they go, geez, there was a great little thing that they did that, that has these five tips. Where can I find it again? You can't go to Facebook and search for the five tip video. You can go to YouTube and you can find it again. That's a profound difference between the two. So I say create whatever video you create, create it for the platform it's on. As far as repurposing goes, taking a podcast like this and repurposing it for YouTube is fine if you don't deliver it in its full form the way it is as a podcast. If you edit it down, for example, I do a weekly webinar. I just, as a matter of fact, before you and I talked today, I was editing a webinar that I recorded yesterday. We delivered it live. We had about a thousand people sign up. We had a couple of hundred people live in the room and it was actually with Sean Canal. We were talking about YouTube. We were talking about his books on YouTube secrets. And it was an hour and a half, the webinar. I take that and I edit it down. And it takes a lot of work to edit it down into what a 10-minute highlight reel. And that's what I post on YouTube, right? And in it, I have a call to action. Say, if you want to experience the full webinar, sign up for our weekly webinar series, Webinar Wednesday, which we call it. And then I have a call to action. But I give them this Reader's Digest condensed version. Or we used to call them cliff notes. I, I don't know. You, you know what? Your textbooks, they used to have those short versions in school. Oh, I love them. <laughs> we do a version like that. So if you did that, you would honor your audience. You would take the 30 or 35 minutes of content here, bring it down to seven minutes to capture the essence. And then I would say, you've got the best of both worlds. Mm, I really like that. But that's a lot of work. Yes, it is. <laughs> That's probably why most people don't do it. And you know something? You can tell when a creator's being lazy. You know, think about as the audience member. Do you want somebody who wants, like, this will ease it. When you look at your YouTube analytics, they'll tell you the numbers of how long people are watching your content. People watch my content for like a year a day of productivity we take out of the marketplace. So it behooves me to make that content as concise and valuable as possible and information rich as possible because you're stealing a lot of time from people if you don't put your best foot forward. It's an ethos as far as I'm concerned. You've got to respect your audience's time as well as your content. If you respect your content, you're going to make it as, as relevant as possible. And if you expect your audience's time, you're going to make it as concise as possible so that they aren't wasting time watching an hour and a half video that you could have edited down into 10 minutes if you had been willing to do the work for them. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's not anything that you can sit there and say, look what I did for you. But your community will recognize that over time that you put in that extra effort for them. And that's how we build our community. That's how we build the loyalty of our audience. Yeah, very true. But the topic of this show was niching down on YouTube. <laughs> that's a good one, yes. That's a good one. So you built up your channel and you said, what, 220,000 or something like subscribers now. And it's all about how to tech and you're doing weekly webinars. I used to do weekly webinars myself until I moved over to the podcast. But what did you find out with the how-tos? Like, what is your new discovery here? So going back to the beginning, at the beginning of every year, I set new goals. And one of the things that I decided I wanted to do was I want 
that to turn into one of the gold play buttons. So I wanted to hit a million subscribers. I wanted to grow. I wanted the challenge of it. And I looked online and there's very few baby boomer YouTubers. It's mainly millennials. You know, I think we know. So I thought, I'd like to be a gray hair with a gold play button. So I'm going to try and grow my channel for no good reason other than hubris. So I hired a consultant to look at my channel because I was growing it kind of the maximum that I could. And I thought he would help me. And one of the things he recommended I do was start a vlog. And so I started doing a vlog on the channel, uh, which injected more of my personality. Now, he wanted me to do a vlog on productivity tools and talking about those sorts of things. But that didn't interest me at all. And when I started to do the vlog, something kind of came over me is I didn't just want to do stuff that was germane to the channel, but I wanted to talk a little bit more about stuff that was interesting to me. And that all started, I guess, I started to watch other vloggers and to see their style. And something possessed me in about the sixth or seventh vlog I was doing. I had a, I was going through a bit of a journey in my own personal life where um, the doctor diagnosed me as being diabetic. And he uh, wanted to put me on medication. It was type 2 diabetes. And I knew it was because of my lifestyle. I knew. I exercised a little bit, but not as much as I could. I didn't watch my diet, certainly. So I said, give me a chance to get this under control myself. And he says, you got three months. And I went away in three months. And I came back. And my AC1 was 5.2. And it was, I, I'd done it because I paid attention to my diet. And I increased the amount of exercise that I was doing. And I, and I took control of my life. I took responsibility. And I sat and I walked into the doctor's office and I said, he said, how are you doing, Steve? I said, I think I'm doing pretty good. He goes, yes, you are. And I went, wow, that's cool. And he was super excited. Like he was giddy. And uh, he said, look, your blood work is perfect. Everything is great. Keep doing what you're doing. I said, why are you so happy? I said, I know why I should be happy because I'm, I did what I was supposed to. But why are you so happy? You're the doctor. He goes, I'm going to see 80 people today, Steve. You're the only person I get to give this news to. And I went, oh, you are kidding me. He says, most people, when they get the diagnosis that you got, say, give me drugs. And I thought, what a tragedy. What a tragedy. So I talked about it in my vlog. I said, I have diabetes. And here's what I did about it. And unlike a lot of people, I think that say, I, this is what I'm going to do about it. I was able to say, this is what I've done about it. So my blood was at this level. Now it's at this level. And this is the result. And I talked about how exercise had gone from being an interruption in my life and something that I avoided to a habit because I committed, like I used to, if I had an email to get out, I would say, oh, I got to get this email or I can't go to the gym. Now I've reached the point in my life where I say, oh, I can't get this email out. I have to go to the gym. That's huge. That is huge. And I just talked about it. And I've never made me the star of the content before it's always been google mail gmail or google calendar you know it's always been the technology has been the star of my content and i'm the sidekick but i put myself out and the response was heartwarming and a little bit overwhelming people were saying wow you've inspired me and i thought i'm not a guy that inspires people that's not my job i teach you how to do something but i kind of followed this on with other con you know opening myself up a little bit more over time and I recognized that there was an opportunity to provide some leadership. And I was uncomfortable with it because I'm a Canadian and, you know, we're just not, yeah, kind of let me do what I do. But I was more and more intrigued by it. And it became something that I sought. I said, I love the fact that I can talk to people this way and that, that I can make a difference in somebody's life. 
that somebody would can see what I've done. And I don't think what I've done is that great, but that it's good enough that it helps them take the next step and maybe make the commitment. And so that became a big part of what I was doing. And as that happened, I started to focus in more and more on my generation, on baby boomers. And I've always had a passion for getting baby boomers to engage more in technology. So it naturally gravitated. But the vlog basically moved very far away from being about productivity and how-to and very much into baby boomers remaining relevant in the digital age, both physically, mentally, and technically. And so an interesting phenomenon happened on the channel. Every one of those vlogs got great engagement lower views than my other videos, but phenomenal number of comments and lots of engagement. And so I loved it. And YouTube liked it as well. But every time I posted one, I lost momentum as far as growing my subscriber base because people would unsubscribe. I'd look at this video and it would have 2000 views. It would have 300 comments and it would be net minus 17 as far as subscriber growth. Ah, I see. So on my channel, a subset wanted to engage the old farts, everybody else says, ah, Steve, I just want to know how to use Evernote. So I was at a conference, in a, a video conference, and Roberto Blake and a couple of my other friends that are kind of leaders in the video space said they'd seen what I was going on with my channel. We pay attention to each other's channels. And he goes, Steve, you've got a niche down. You've got your channel is not focused anymore, and that's why it's not growing as fast as it should be. He says, you've got to split into two channels. And I go, nah, I don't want to split into two channels, Roberto. That's a stupid idea. And he convinced me. They all convinced me. They said, you know, no, you, it's true. You have to do it. And I went, oh, but I've got 200,000 subscribers. Why would I give that up? You got to do it. So a month, a little bit over a month ago, I split the channel into two. And I pulled all of my personal content and the vlog content and the baby boomer content into a smaller channel, into a startup channel. And I left the other channel the way it was. And wouldn't you know it, they were 100% right. Both channels have flourished. The little channel, the B channel, is now nearly 4,000 subscribers, tiny, but still getting almost as many views as it did when there was 200,000 subscribers because the people who were interested followed me over and subscribed. The other channel, it's uh, almost doubled the number of subscribers per day signing up because it's now hyper-focused. It's niched down on just the productivity space. So they're getting what they want. And Google's happy, YouTube's happy, because they can send people to my channel who want to learn how to use Evernote or how to learn to be more productive and they're getting the information that they expect. So it's a win-win, but it took a little bit of courage to do. And there's a solid lesson there though. You, the more you niche, the better you are. And it's a hard hurdle for us to overcome to kind of step up to that because we want lots of people. But I think when you recognize how vast social networking is, how vast YouTube is, that you can get lots of people in a very small niche. You just have to concentrate on it. And if you have the courage to focus down and to niche down, that will accelerate your success. I think you can succeed either way, but you will succeed a lot faster by niching down. Well, that's an amazing story. So basically, by splitting it up, you're in total getting more subscribers. Both, yeah. Yeah. And both are growing faster than they were together. Yeah. Do you feel it's more work with two channels? Yeah, it's a little bit more work. It's always going to be more work, but it's more productive work because it's focused, right? On the vlog channel, I don't have to. I'm not trying to grow the vlog channel the way I'm trying to grow the main channel. The vlog channel is ultimately going to be a big revenue channel for me, but I'm not 
trying to rank in search with that. The discovery there is very different because I'm not playing quite the same game. It's more of a community as opposed to a search-based channel in the growth that the main Dottotech channel is. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I noticed that, you know, what you said also before about someone like me, maybe it's not my goal to have 100,000 subscribers because, you know, I already have a good business and if I just get a few thousand leads from YouTube, I'm happy. Yeah. But when you are selling lower price products, let's say, or how-to guides or workshops, that's a different business model. So you need to scale. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, I know that you deal with the, you know, kind of large masterminds and, and really focus groups. So YouTube for you, the podcast probably does more than YouTube could do for you because of the nature of how people consume your content. Your community probably likes to hear from you very regularly, but they also, this sort of content is ideal for them to listen to while they're commuting, while they're walking their dog, while they're at the gym. And so, you know, you fit into their gaps. And you don't necessarily, you're not necessarily looking to be discovered by lots and lots of new people because I can't say for sure, but I imagine a lot of your growth comes from organic, from people who have been through one of your programs, valuing what you've done and introducing other people to your programs. And YouTube isn't really going to facilitate that. Now, if you want to have a series, you know, if you put together a series of videos, YouTube's a great place to deliver that series, but it is a ravenous beast. You know, to remain ranking in YouTube, you have to constantly be publishing, publishing at least every week, probably every twice a week is best. And you have to be hyper-focused. So is that going to distract from a successful content strategy that you already have? I tend to think it probably would. You know, one of the things that we all experience, you, you know, that we go to our, conf we go to social media marketing world and We've all got friends who are in Instagram, friends who are Facebook and friends who are Twitter and friends who are on LinkedIn and friends who are on YouTube. And they all tell us what we're missing on their platform, don't they? It's, it's like, <laughs> I get, you know, Sue Zimmerman's a good friend of both of ours. She's constantly giving me heck because I do nothing on Instagram. And I go, yeah, that's right. So I'm going to try again. I just find lie to her. I just say, yeah, I'm really working hard on it. She knows I'm not. But because it just doesn't work for me. And it, it might work for me if I decided to put my energy into it. But I know YouTube works for me. I know it does, right? It's the place. With this new community that I'm working on, with this new group, uh, as I'm kind of focusing more and more on baby boomers, I'm starting a podcast. That's starting in the new year. I'll continue the YouTube content, but I'm not increasing what I'm going to do on YouTube. I'm saying podcasts are probably what baby boomers are going to enjoy consuming far more than YouTube. Mm. I like that idea a lot, yes. Understanding your, now I might be wrong, but that's my strategy at this point. And it's well considered. I've thought it out. Uh, so it'll be tested. But I recognize that I don't want to be in all places. I don't want to try. And, and I, I've heard a lot of our colleagues say, you know, you want to be everywhere and that works for them. Uh, but you can also just be hyper-focused on your one market and still do really well. There's not only one path to success in our game. There isn't, but I want to confirm your strategy because I did a strategy day with VaynerMedia, 4D it's called, mm -hmm. Gary Vaynerchuk and his team. And we were discussing the people in the room when the strategy people were outside, how we kind of consumed content from Gary V. And most people discover him through video. And then at some point they get tired of his videos. <laughs> 
and go to the podcast. Yeah. So I think you're absolutely right. It's a discovery channel for a certain age group. Yeah. And baby boomers and Gary don't really get along. Like I like Gary, but he irritates the heck out of me. I like his messaging, but I'd like to be delivered a little more quietly. Thank you. Uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> but he works for the millennials. And when you think about the message that the millennials needed is, I'm going to, any millennials in your community are probably going to be pissed off at me after I say this, but millennials needed to learn to work hard. They needed to learn to hustle. That's where the term side hustle, that's his side hustle thing, right? And he taught them that. He taught them the value of work ethos. Most baby boomers had that ethos already. You know, I worked four jobs when my kids were little. I've always been, you know, so I don't need somebody to tell me, Steve, you have to work harder. I need to have to learn to work smarter and I need to learn what my limitations are and are not. And so I need to be, I need to be exposed. I'm speaking globally for baby boomers. I need to be exposed to what the potential is in the online world because I've ignored it. I've been in a silo working in a corporation for my whole life in a cubicle and I have trouble seeing beyond those doors, beyond those walls. So it's a whole different need that the visionaries in leading baby boomers and Gen Xers have than the ones that succeeded for millennials to get them to where they're going now as we're kind of in the same space. But figuring out which platform works is is essential and it's also where your voice what's where does your imagination get fired i mean you enjoy these conversations so these podcasts are absolutely perfect oh, i love it you might not find as much joy as much satisfaction and as much energy if you had to just sit there and deliver straight to camera and doing a video yeah that's true where does your energy come from but i gotta ask you one thing before we wrap up of course we're friends on Fred's book and you screenshot comments from your YouTube channel. It's one of my favorite things to read in my feed if I see something new from you. Yeah. Share with the audience what happens. What do you do? You're <laughs> Well, YouTube, it's not as bad as it used to be, but it's still a place where people like to be insulting occasionally. And you get comments, you get hecklers on YouTube. And a lot of YouTube content creators just delete their posts, which is fine. But I find tremendous humor in their posts when they say something to me like, you know, somebody said, how's that terrorist misogynistic beard thing working for you, Steve? He posts this and I, cause I've got a big beard. And I go, how's the judging a book by its cover thing working for you? <laughs> like, you know, you're judging me by my beard. I have a background in stand-up comedy or in, in sketch comedy and in, in, in improv. So I know how to deal with hecklers. And, uh, you know, in, in there you say, never let the heckler get the last word. And you use it as energy. And when somebody says something, as long as it's not just crass, but when they say things that are stupid or insulting and they think it's going to hurt me, um, my reply tells them that I've enjoyed it more than it's hurt me, which I think drives them a little bit crazier than anything else. And then I share that with people on Facebook because my friends all just love the, love the comments and they love to see what people are saying. And so it's just become, I call it comment of the week and I've got, I should turn it into a book. So many people said, please turn it into a book because yes. it's something that you want to read in the bathroom because they're so funny. Uh, but I, yeah, I continue to do that and I will continue to do that. And it's disappointing me because as I've grown, there's less of it. You know, as I become more popular, there's, the people are, and sometimes my own community members jump in before I can and push the person down. But, but I, I still look forward to anybody saying something stupid about me. And, you know, they call me Santa Claus all the time and all sorts of other things. So, and I'm glad that you like it. It thrills me that you like it. 
I love it. And I, you know, I love your response to it. And you say, yeah, because you find kind of the fun in it, the absurdity of it. And uh, this is what people tell me that they're most worried about on social media. And I'm like, no, look at Steve. He just makes fun of the trolls. Well, one of our friends, Jay Bear has, I mean, he's, he's turned it into a, an entire business line, which is hug your haters, right? Now he talks about it from a little bit of a slightly different perspective, but it's the same thing. Look, we all focus on the one negative comment. We can have 75 comments of people saying, thank you so much for this. This podcast was awesome. And then you can have one person post a comment saying, that Dotto really irritated me. What a doofus. And you're going to go, oh, geez. Oh, I feel so bad for Steve. I feel bad for that me and that person. We worked so hard. And why does he not like Steve? Steve's a great guy. So what? One guy hates me. One woman hates me. Okay. It's okay. It's a free country. You don't have to like what I have to say. Go watch somebody else. But we do get our insecurities take over. And one person can just ruin our day with a comment. And 35 people who actually say, gosh, Steve, you're my go-to guy. I rely on you so much. And I appreciate the energy you put in. Thank you. You make my day. And we just go, yeah, that's nice. That's nice. And we, and we ignore all of that. So I think that we need to take a little bit of a reality check and appreciate being appreciated, which we find it difficult to do, I think. Yeah, so true. Steve, we could go on forever, but I like to keep my episodes short because, you know, I have a format. I have a particular format on my episodes and I keep them to 30 minutes or so. So you were talking about how important it is that, that your audience gets what they expect. Yes. So they're not going to get an hour-long podcast or two hours from me uh, like some other podcasters do. So, no, we keep it short and sweet. So, Steve, I'd rather invite you again on the show to see how that channel takes off. I'm so excited for niching down on YouTube. Thank you for sharing with my audience, and let's talk again soon. Have fun storming a castle. Go to signal.com forward slash 260 and there you find links to Steve and also the show notes of this episode. Thank you for listening to The Sigrun Show. Did you enjoy this episode? If you did, please share, subscribe and give the show a review on iTunes. See you in the next episode.